Seriously, just last weekend, my daughter and I went through the first series of getting scuba certified. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So we had a great time. We did all the book work. We did all the pool work. Now we just have to go out and do four open water dives and we'll be certified. And I did that specifically because I've been inspired by the divers here at the aquarium. Okay. And I really want to get in the shark tank. Oh, right. Hi, I'm Thomas Fox with Creative Mornings Cleveland. We're thrilled to have Evergreen Podcasts on board as our official podcast partner. Evergreen Podcasts is committed to producing the best original content and engaging shows. Right now, you're listening to Wake Up Call, recorded on location at the monthly Creative Mornings Lecture Series. Enjoy. Hi, I'm your host, David Allen Moss. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Wake Up Call. Listen in as we connect with the creative community, talk shop, and explore ideas that are inspired by this month's Creative Mornings theme. Chapters across the world have been talking about water this past month, and so are we. And speaking of water, I want to tell you a little bit about Aqua Carpatica, my favorite drinking water. It's fresh, natural spring and mineral water that comes from the Carpathian Mountains, the last wild forest in Europe, located in Romania. It keeps me nice and hydrated and ready to go for the show. For more information, you can go to their website, shopaquacarpatica.com, and use code WAKEUP. That's W-A-K-E-U-P, all caps, for a 15% discount. And don't forget, Aqua Carpatica gets delivered right to your front door. Today I sit down and talk with Emira Zayed, Tammy Brown, Doug Page, and Lucas Kronovitter. Well, it's kind of an ethereal thing, but, you know, what do you think about the power of water and how it transcends all sorts of things, creative, industry, everything? Well, I mean, considering the beginning of all civilization starts near water, right. all major cities. Just up the road, just up the road in Chicago, the whole city was underwater at one point, and they put the, everything up. That's like Seattle. I think it was a couple stories. Seattle is the same. Raised so the city. They raised the city one story, and they made mandates that if you built a building after a certain point in time, you had to have a an entryway on the second story as well. So when they raised the sidewalks, your business would be at the top, and that's actually where the term underground yeah. comes from. Wow. But it was because of the flooding. <laughs> I think we're kind of onto something, though, because it's our relationship with water. We're working really hard to undo this maybe dysfunctional relationship with water. Before we needed to be safe from water, we needed water. All civilization started near water because we cannot survive without water. We need water for irrigation for our plants. We need water for us to drink, fresh water, obviously. Right, right. And so we needed to be near water. But we're circling back in that cycle. We're realizing now that we've exploited the water, that we polluted the water, that we need to go right back and we're always going to need water. You know, what's interesting, too. We talked, uh, you know, on this idea of the, the push-pull. We had some talk this week about climate change. We've got this wonderful love for the water. We've built all up and down our coasts. People want to live by the water. And yet, now, we've got to kind of figure out how to either hold that back, like we've been doing since the dawn of mankind, right? How do we keep that relationship copacetic? Do we have to move away from the water? Cities like Miami and New Orleans and these cities that are already, you know, threatened by any rise in sea level is going to be an issue. I'm actually a mountain person. My tribe is from southern Idaho, northern Nevada. Okay. And nobody stays on the reservation for long. So I've lived in Boise around the mountains. So I love the mountains. I'm not that person who wants to be by. Yeah. But <laughs> by can the you water. tell us a little bit about your tribe's 
uh, relationship or some of the symbolism maybe with water and, and what it means to, to the tribe? Is water an issue on the reservation? That's, that's a, that's that's a, a whole, whole other, other issue. Yeah. I mean, the reservation is lands given by the government yeah. to the tribes. Yeah. Those aren't their, their lands. This yeah. is just... It's, it's in the middle of the desert. Yeah. You've essentially given people a piece of land that's in the middle of the desert when right. their original lands have water on them. Right, But right. Yeah, it's a very different discussion. But if we bring it back to just water, are we getting our, what is it, 64 ounces a day? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. Wow. Amira's reaction really speaks to the importance of water in a practical sense, but in a very symbolic sense as well. We're quickly starting to get a picture of the impact and then the place that water occupies in our lives, and in the lives of our community. I mean, the most powerful things are able to give and take life. So it, it's, it's that thing, and it's also finding the balance in anything, with water or with anything in your life. So obviously you could drown yourself by drinking too much water. You could also die without water. So most of the things that we need in life, we have to find that balance, that you got to walk that middle line. Do you think that we take water for granted? Oh, we do. Why are we in this situation now? Why are we looking at, you know, turning off the water when we brush our teeth or finding ways to use less water? Because we have used so much. Right. Especially in the Great Lakes area, we take for granted some places, they have restrictions on water. So uh, when, we what have days water, you can water your lawn, yes. things like this. What about other countries? Right. In Jordan, water is rationed. The water flows one day a week, and then if you fill up your tanks, and if there's no yeah. water, then what? you need yeah. to order water and yeah. pay for a truck of water to come and fill up your water tank. There's been some themes in the creative space. There's been some themes in motion pictures. You know, Mad Max dealt with some of these dystopian themes. The movie Waterworld with Kevin Costner. But this idea that water becomes this real, rare, this power source, you just reference a case where it's a whole different value is placed on it than here, where we're just flush in, in the resource. Well, we are a throwaway society here in the U.S. Yeah. So you think it's, it's, just, even with you think water. it's just embedded into our culture? Like, why can't I leave the shower running for 15 minutes before I get in? Yeah, you know, I'm like, paying for just, the water, so I should yeah, be able to take water. a longer shower. I pay for it. Yeah. Right. I like to think that we have an understanding of how precious natural resources are and that we're aware and mindful of their use, but here in the Midwest, we're so fortunate to have the Great Lakes and plenty of rainfall that we often don't think of water in this way. What better place to talk about water, learn about the critical importance of healthy waterways and the ecosystems contained within, than at an aquarium? And that's where we are today. We're at the Greater Cleveland Aquarium, and I'm so glad to have an opportunity to sit down with the director, Tammy Brown, and hear some of her thoughts. Can you just talk a little bit about the theme today and hosting this event and what you've learned being the director of this aquarium? Well, I've learned that keeping water clean is, is actually really hard. <laughs> right, <laughs> so. right. Like every tank. <laughs> every tank, absolutely. But um, the theme this morning, biomimicry and how it can be used to build better bulkheads, to improve right. the health of our river. Right. Absolutely, right in our sweet spot. Um, obviously, we're all about clean water, as I said, and the Cuyahoga um, and its story after the um, last time that it burned 50 years ago. Right. And 
um, biomimicry is actually something that we're just adding. Literally, like by Monday, we'll have the biomimicry exhibit done. Here. Absolutely, yeah. So it's this was just a, a mashup of perfect topics for wow. us. Talk a little bit about biomimicry and how it relates to where we are, maybe even in our relationship with water. Absolutely. So the exhibit that we're going to put up is mostly focused on aquatic animals and what they can teach you. So for an example, just a, a quick one, um, the way that shark skin is formed with these little dermal denticles, which are basically little teeth, they form channels in their skin and that can help them to reduce the amount of um, drag that they're getting when they swim. They've actually used that concept to create swimsuits and in the, uh, I think it was 2008 Olympics, something like 90% of the medal winners wore suits that were based on shark skin that was so successful that the Olympics actually banned it. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wait a minute. Come really? On. Truly. Or they just need to make it available to all athletes. Well, that's what but, I thought. Why yeah, are why we, we walking away from technology s- something here? Something so cool. Right. There's so much to learn from the world around us. But we need to take time to look and understand the value there is in living with the environment we find ourselves in instead of trying to conquer the environment we find ourselves in. If we can translate that into daily living, into industry and into technology, like Tammy just mentioned, we could change the industrialized world. Absolutely. All right, so we're in this uh, water-rich region of the world with the Great Lakes. Talk about some of the things you might be aware of or things that are happening that are giving us a a real, more positive relationship with all of our water resources. Absolutely, so the Great Lakes are um, something like 20% of the fresh water that is available to the world. And when you think about it in that scale, it just makes it so important to protect the health of the Great Lakes. So the Great Lakes legislation that is at the federal level to help restore the lakes Every budget period, that gets in question. It gets zeroed out, and then we all have to say, that's crazy, bring it back. Um, And that's an international aspect as well, because Canada is, you know, obviously on the border of all the Great Lakes and also has to work to keep it healthy. So that's something really important is keeping that funding going so that we can understand things like the algal blooms um, that happen in Lake Erie and how do we keep that from happening to protect our drinking water. And then bring it down to, you know, the the fish and the river. So the last time that the river burned 50 years ago, there were zero species of fish found in the lake, in the industrial channel. Zero. Do we know what it is now? 70. So we've gone from zero to 70 in basically 50 years. That's a wonderful number. Absolutely. That's biodiversity. It's fantastic. And the great thing about that is that some of those species are actually um, what would be called indicator species. So if you can find them in the water, that means the water is... Right. Healthy enough. Like a rainbow enough. dart. So so there's really some great news and the work that was described this morning about thinking about the bulkheads and how to make them more fish friendly as part of that thought process. Brilliant. Oh, yeah. Absolutely needs to oh, happen. Oh, this is like nature has been evolving for what, three point five billion years or something like yeah. that? And they've got some solutions that we right. really right. need to think about. Right. What's the biggest challenge with water? One of our biggest challenges right now, honestly, is plastic debris. And it's certainly in this area, but all over the world, um, the volume of plastic debris entering our landfills and then um, our streets and then getting washed into our waterways is just unimaginable. 
and that plastic will never go away. What it does is it breaks down into little bitty pieces. The fish think it's food, they eat it, yeah. um, and then guess and who it, eats it after that, right? Yeah. So um, the plastic debris is a horrible problem. Yes, we can recycle, but that's becoming more of a challenge. So humans really need to start thinking of options that don't include plastic for their lives. So that's the biggest threat that's uh, all over the globe. Global, yes, for sure. And I'm not advocating that we should walk away from plastics entirely. I think it has revolutionized many of the ways that we react. But things like a single-use plastic, so a single straw that you use one time and then you throw it away, or a plastic bag, there are options that are not hard. They, you just have to start remembering it. Plastics are certainly a huge problem for the environment at large, but very much so for our waterways. It's interesting to be talking about these topics here in a city that has a significant legacy for creating legislation for environmental change as a direct result of a polluted waterway. Many people know the Cuyahoga River, running through the middle of downtown Cleveland, caught fire in 1969. And that wasn't the first time either. But the response to that event changed the whole country. And just for some background, this is from Wikipedia. Carl Stokes was an American politician and diplomat of the Democratic Party who served as the 51st mayor of Cleveland, Ohio. Elected on November 7, 1967, and taking office on January 1, 1968, he was the first black elected mayor of a major U.S. city. So Carl Stokes um, was actually on the leading edge of advocating for clean water when he saw what was happening to our river. Thankfully, his brother was in Congress at that time, so right. he and Louis Stokes um, both worked together to advocate for the creation of the what became the EPA, and their first move was then to create the Clean Water Act. So when we talk about advocating for clean water and being aware of that, it really, really did start here in Cleveland, and the Stokes brothers played a huge role in that. A piece of this puzzle that's not lost on us is the cleansing and restorative power of water and nature itself. I asked Tammy about that very thing. When you stop polluting the water, right? Because that was what the Clean Water Act was about. Let's stop putting all this stuff into the water. And the river started healing itself. Right. Not that we didn't help along the way with that. But the, when you give nature the opportunity, it can heal itself. And I hope that this commemoration of the river will give us a chance to get that word out and make people more aware of their behaviors and how that can either help or hurt nature. Take a look at an individual watershed. It includes countless waterways. They're the smallest of tributaries that lead to streams and into river after river until you have the Cuyahoga in this case. But it might be the Missouri, the Columbia, the Rio Grande, the Rhine, the Nile, or the Amazon. Everything flows downstream. Not just the water, but everything we put in the water, from plastic bags to fertilizer runoff. We all affect the world around us. We affect the people around us and the environment around us as well. Sometimes I think about how insignificant I am, a single person in this wide world. But maybe that's not right at all. The featured speakers at this Creative Mornings lecture at the Greater Cleveland Aquarium were Lucas Cronaviter and Doug Page. It was great to sit down with them for a few minutes and talk about their project to redesign the bulkheads throughout the industrialized portion of the Cuyahoga River. It sounds a little dull on the surface, but it's a pretty incredible project with wide-reaching potential. While you were presenting, we were thinking about our early conversation and our relationship with water. And you know how the industrial age was brutal 
on all That's of our a good waterways. Word. And now you're up here talking about creativity and innovation and certainly the design thinking that can completely reboot the relationship with, in this case, uh, the river. You want to talk a little bit about that? I think the project picked us and it really had to do with the 50th anniversary of okay. the Burning River through the Cleveland Foundation. Right. And one of the goals was to find someone who's been working in water, and they asked me to reach out and find an international partner okay. who, who was working in a similar way. Right. When Doug reached out to me through a mutual contact, I was thrilled to talk to him, of course, and then the more I learned about the project and the relevance to the, the Burning River, the anniversary, I realized this is a global project, and the potentials for, for Cleveland and the Cuyahoga River to adapt and become a new model of sustainable urban water management is extremely exciting opportunity that I am so thankful for. I just couldn't pass up. That really steps off from what Tammy was sharing with us, which is about sort of visionary uh, leadership that came out of that terrible event yes. with the Stokes and how they brought uh, clean water legislation all the way up to the federal level. And so we turned it into a positive and you're doing that again. Well, one way to think about it is any industrialized river in yeah. the world has similar issues. They all have these sort of industrial man-made interfaces where it used to be natural. Right. So there's nothing that we're doing that's gonna apply only to the Cuyahoga. Right. So if we come up with a system that works, it should be adaptable. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. You know, I, you know, I was just thinking about that, that modular, <laughs> oh, these manta rays are splashing everybody. But this, the modularity, I really like that word. That was very clear in your presentation. So this, this idea that you could scale it. I think the process itself uh, would, would yield results that could apply anywhere. Uh, okay. Because a, a big part of it isn't exactly just saying we have one prototype that you can, you can drop, drop anywhere in the world, but the, how we reach uh, the results of this prototype and what the drivers are and uh, local to the Cuyahoga and then how that process could be adapted in other environments and create maybe new models. I think that's the real, I think, wealth of the project. Anywhere you have an interface between land and water, in an urban environment especially. But to be honest, we have changed uh, even natural environments and, and how the land interfaces with the water, be it through agriculture or through recreational beaches, uh, you name it. That interface is one of the most critical, from a performance point of view, uh, ecosystems in the world, right? Water, land, interface. And uh, we tend to oversimplify that. And this is a project is about understanding a new framework that, uh, that merges our demands, our requirements of having dry feet and having a, a stable shore with the ecosystem demands. So it's, you know, it's, it should be versatile. You talked about, uh, you know, there's the functional uh, solution uh, to everything you're designing, but also there might be a symbolic power that can change people's minds. There is an opportunity sometimes to think, uh, to speculate on future scenarios or even to uh, provoke a reaction uh, so that people can understand where projects could go, maybe not today, but in the future. And I think there's real power behind that. So sometimes uh, uh, visions, even though maybe not completely practical today, uh, can really help move that forward. Uh, but really, all we really need to do is put the right system in place and nature will fix it. You know, we just need to set up the right kind of ecosystem. Yeah. Your design is enhancing what's already there, which can make better breeding grounds for fish, 
better overall habitat along the periphery of this waterway? You know, if we can create sort of the ecosystem services that a natural riparian zone creates, right. like I said, the system will take care of itself. Right. right now, we're not doing that. We're fighting it. We're not totally out of the way. No. We've taken baby steps. Right. And, uh, you know, I even, I want to be in the way, to be honest. Uh, when you talk about <laughs> regenerative design, yeah. uh, a, big, a big part of that is this idea of co-evolution. Yeah, uh, that that it's not about us stepping out of out of the the way of nature, so to speak, but understanding how we relate to it and how we can begin to create uh, a relationship to natural systems, even in urban environments. We kind of help set the stage, but we don't have to sort of come up with the solution is providing the right system. Yeah. Wow. And you know what I love? Think about children and families uh, on a beach, just exploring a natural environment, picking up shells, uh, getting their feet wet, whether it's uh, Lake Erie or the coast or even uh, a stream or a wetland. These are the kinds of activities that I want to see in urban environments. And I hope through our process we can find a way to develop infrastructure that people can actually engage with. You know, that would right. be uh, phenomenal, I think. That is a game changer. You know, you think of the bulkhead and mm. it's just a blunt face. It's almost turning our backs to something that's so, that should be welcoming. Well said. Something happened when Lucas and I first got together. He kind of showed images of people swimming in the yeah. River Spree and as a goal. And my first reaction was to laugh because I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, no, people aren't going to do that. And then within seconds, I said, wait a minute. That's the aspirational goal. Right. If we can help create an environment that people will think about swimming in it, Right. Now we've really made a difference. Yeah, I mean, hey, we're, we're, there's people in the water up in the tributaries. But it's the same watershed, so you should be able to visualize, right? But right mm -hmm. now it's a little difficult. Something I think is, uh, we're seeing over the past few decades is um, a newfound appreciation for, for ecology. And part of that is because the industries that were thriving, that built this infrastructure, are, are changing. Okay. And then the value system changes as well. You have new businesses moving in. Sometimes the waterfront becomes uh, uh, primary for real estate or maybe it becomes primary for public parks. It's this idea of new urbanism. We, we want to move away from automobiles. We want to move into pedestrian or bicycling or kayaking. And that gives us a newfound appreciation. And that's something that we can, we can build off of. So it's, it's a cultural change as well. And I think in that sense, it's unstoppable. You know, few of our environmental issues have easy solutions. But if what Lucas is saying is right, and it's unstoppable, this cultural shift, this mindset that's emerging, we're on our way to a better tomorrow for our waterways, the ecosystems within those waterways, and we're building a new future for ourselves. I think about all the disciplines that are coming together with this project. This is a project that could change the game for waterways around the world. And it's happening right here in our little city where the river once caught fire. We were the first region to change legislation and change our relationship between the land and the water and how we're stewards of that boundary. So they're coming in with industrial design, with urban planning, materials design, regenerative design. I mean, how about that? New forms of design just to get to the root of the matter, which is how can we improve the relationship with the water. Thanks for listening to Wake Up Call. You know, this podcast is growing thanks to listeners like you. And along the way, we're getting to hear stories from people who are using creativity to make, you know, enormous change. If you got friends out there, please share this podcast with them. Encourage them to go to iTunes, subscribe, drop a review out there. It really helps us be discovered in the podcast space. Join us next month when the theme is inclusive. It's great having you here.
Wake Up Call is a production of Evergreen Podcasts, a proud member of the Front Porch Media Network. Special thanks to executive producers Joan Andrews and Michael D'Aloya. Producer and audio director, Dave Douglas. Account manager, Connor Standish. Thanks to 2Bob Crew for the use of their song, Rooster, available on iTunes. Learn more about this and other podcasts from Evergreen at evergreenpodcast.com. I'm David Allen Moss. Thanks for listening to Wake Up Call, ideas that crow. Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.